This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. The Gold King mine spill released millions of gallons of orange wastewater into the Animas River in 2015. Environmental Protection Agency workers accidentally triggered the spill while working at the mine. The image left people like Durango resident Scott Wallace heartsick. He stood by the banks of the Animas just days after the spill. To see it injured and damaged, and of course the worry is how long we may face for it to be restored or come back, just makes you sad. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood was in southwest Colorado covering the spill. And Grace, you've just read a book that shatters a myth many national news outlets imposed on the region. Yes. So many people saw the orange pictures in 2015. They assumed it was this pristine environment in the midst of one of its first disasters. And, you know, in fact, southwest Colorado has a toxic legacy of abandoned mines and pollution. And there's this new book, River of Lost Souls by Jonathan Thompson, that really gets into that. You read the book and you also covered the spill. So you sat down with Thompson, who has a personal connection to southwestern Colorado. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Take us back to the moment when you first heard about the spill. You rushed up in your car north of Durango to see the water in 2015. What was going through your head? Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting. I was actually in my home office. I saw this on Twitter that this had happened and that this plume of nasty stuff was headed our way uh, downstream from Silverton, which is about 50 miles upstream from Durango. And so I wanted to, you know, certainly go see it. So I, I raced into my car and, and ran out and crossed the river in Durango. And there, there was just the normal scene that there always is in the middle of the summer, which is a lot of people on and in the river, you know, dozens of them. Um, and the river was nice and green and the normal color it usually is. And so it, that's because I hadn't reached there yet. So I, I raced upstream to the next crossing of the river, which is about seven miles above Durango. And I, I drove out there and I got to where I could see the river and I was, it was shocking. Um, the color was like, uh, I, I compare it to Tang that has been maybe mixed too thickly. Like you let your kid go ahead and, and mix it as thick as he wanted to. And it turns into this kind of thick, opaque, orangish yellow stuff. A shocking sight, and yet you know about the pollution history of the region. Yeah, and so one of the things that first went through my mind, you know, was, oh, dear. Um, But then the next thing that kind of went through my mind was, well, it's not the first time it's happened. And, uh, you know, for one thing, the, the color that the river was was not dramatically different than what I had seen and Silverton folks had seen um, when I lived in Silverton for 10 years uh, upstream with Cement Creek, which is a pretty heavily impacted stream by mining, but it's also got natural metal loading and, and acid rock drainage in it. And so during spring runoff, it's kind of common for it to run a pretty deep orange color. So that kind of offset some of the shock, as well as the fact that as a kid, I had seen the river turn weird colors too, because of tailings ponds breaches. Uh, at one point, the mine up in Silverton, which was still operational when I was a kid in the 70s and the 80s, it burst through the bottom of a lake, which then came through the mine, um, which was much bigger than the Gold King spill and turned the river black at that point. So yeah, I knew the history. And, and so my sense was, yeah, this is shocking. But and my, my first sense was that it, it wasn't that big of a deal. 
believe it or not. Wow. Surprised to hear that. I mean, your family's lived in southwestern Colorado for decades. You grew up there. You live part-time in Durango. And you're an environmental journalist. You live in a place with a pretty polluted history. What was it like researching this book? Yeah. So so when I set out to write this book, I mean, that, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about was like, here was this Gold King spill, and it generated so much attention and so much energy. But the, but it was treated in a lot of ways where, where people saw it like it was some kind of isolated incident. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to give the context to that. And not only the context that is the pollution part, you know, that there was that there are also these other things going on that are sort of the equivalent of Gold King spills. They've gone on through history and they're going on still today. Um, you know, I wanted to put that, but I also wanted to give the, the history, the good sides of the history and the way people have been attracted to this region for many years and they've tried to make it their home. And they've they've done, you know, pretty amazing things. Uh, but at the same time, in a lot of cases, there's sort of a tendency to turn around and defile that home as well. You talk about when you saw the Gold King mine spill, you weren't that surprised. I mean, how far back in history do you think this goes? I know mining really came to that region in the 1880s. Yeah, so mining actually started here in the 1870s. But during the 1880s is when milling started. And milling is what gives it basically more of an industrial feel. It's not a bunch of guys with picks and stuff. It's a much larger scale phenomenon. And so it was not that long after that. I mean, acid mine drainage started pretty early on, but people started really noticing the problems in the late 1880s to the early 1890s in this region, when the miners were dumping the tailings, which is the waste from milling, they were dumping that straight into the rivers, and they were running downstream, just like the Gold King mine spill did, downstream for you know at least a hundred miles, and it was messing up the farmers' ditches, it was messing up their crops, and it was messing up their drinking water because at the time, of course, they're drinking right out of the river. And interestingly enough, and this is something that that gets lost a lot, the farmers fought back beginning in the 1880s, um, especially on the Front Range, uh, on Clear Creek. There was a major movement of farmers and downstreamers, as I like to call them, who fought back against this. And that went all the way to the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, right? It did, but it took a long time. You know, basically, the farmers would rise up, they'd go to the legislature, for example, and they'd work to get a law passed. And they might even get a law passed. The problem was, is it was toothless, and it didn't change the habits of the mine operators. Um, They would go to court and sue. And oftentimes the judges ruled in favor of the farmers, not the miners, but they would never put an injunction on the dumping of tailings because they worried about the effect it would have on the state's economy because mining was so big and the miners would really play that up. You know, they'd say, look, we'd like to stop polluting, but we can't because if we did, we'd have to shut down and just think of all those jobs we'd lose. So it took about, you know, really 50 years of fighting. It wasn't until 1935 that the Colorado Supreme Court finally said, you know what, you guys have to do something different and you have to start containing that tailings instead of dumping it in the river. It's so fascinating to me to hear these economic arguments from the mining industry, to hear, uh, you know, ranchers and farmers becoming, I guess, today what you would call environmentalists, but they probably just wanted clean water. Exactly. Yeah. And they really were environmentalists. I mean, when you think about it, like, I mean, they were worried about their crops. And so they weren't worried about the environment in sort of an intrinsic way. But 
they they were fighting for the same things. They were fighting against pollution, and and it really, it's not that much different than today in in the oil and gas fields. You know, in a lot of cases, it's the farmers and ranchers who are kind of on the front lines uh, dealing with those impacts. And quite honestly, uh, the oil and gas industry tends to kind of respond the same way the mining industry did back then. Jonathan, it's not like pollution just suddenly stopped in the 30s with that state Supreme Court case that you mentioned. Other industries came to southwestern Colorado, including the Durango smelter. And one of the interesting things you write about is when that smelter moved from producing, as I understand it, iron ore to uranium in the mid-1900s. It was important for World War II and Cold War era efforts. But uh, what kind of impact did that have, milling uranium ore on uh, people who use the river water downstream? It was pretty alarming, actually. What happened is it was in the 1940s, yeah, the Durango uranium mill started up and they said that they were they were milling vanadium, but actually it was uranium and it was going to the Manhattan Project. And actually some of that uranium was probably used in the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And after the war, they, they continued to do it and to um, mill uranium and, and produce yellow cake for weapons mostly. And in the mid-50s, this doctor came along. His name was George Moore, and he had worked for the U.S. Public Health Service around the world. And he came in to, to run the San Juan Basin Health Department. And he looked over there, and he saw this gigantic pile of uranium tailings. And he saw them, you know, piping wastewater straight into the river. And he saw that people were using that tailings to put in their gardens and uh, put in their houses. And he got a little bit alarmed. So he he kind of put out the alarm bells. And eventually, the US Public Health Service actually came and studied the whole thing, um, which was kind of unique, because there, these mills were all over the West. But it took this one guy to, to raise the alarm bells here. And what they found was that huge amounts of radioactive waste, essentially, was being dumped straight into the river and going down. And it was definitely contaminating downstreamers drinking water. Like I said, you know, they would drink raw river water. If you're a rural person along the river, you just go down and get a bucket and you'd let it, the sediment settle out and you drink it. Um, they had it in their ditches on their crops. They had, they gave it to their livestock and these guys checked it out and it's like people's apples or cabbage or whatever. It was, you know, it had very high levels of radium, which is a very dangerous um, substance along with all kinds of other metals and chemicals that that they used to process the uranium. And that was going on for, yeah, another like 100 miles downstream. And and that eventually resulted in uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in cleanup federal money from the Department of Energy. Yeah, I mean, it, it was the Durango one, actually, they were so pressured by this study that they shut down and moved their operations to Shiprock in 1963, Shiprock, New Mexico, which is on the Navajo Nation. They continued to do the same thing and nobody stopped them there. But then eventually uh, in the 80s, uh, there was a massive cleanup effort, not only in Durango, which cost yeah, huge amounts of money, but also all over the West. Um, so a lot of taxpayer money was used to subsidize these mills and then to clean them up. So people in southwest Colorado aren't strangers to federal government cleanups. Returning to the Gold King mine spill in 2015, uh, the EPA triggered that spill, and now it's involved in cleaning up mines in that region. In what ways do you think this legacy you've just described 
complicates relations between downstream residents and the federal government. Well, yeah, I mean, it's very complicated. And it's especially complicated here. And the reason is, is because there's various levels of distrust or whatever for the federal government. So, you know, for example, the Gold King spill went down onto the Navajo Nation. And they have a long history of, of problems with the federal government. Of They have good reason to distrust them. So when the EPA came in and said, hey, uh, we're sorry, but, but everything's back to normal, there was a lot of belief that, well, is it really back to normal? I mean, that's what they said when they cleaned up the Shiprock uranium mill. But in the meantime, it's leaking radioactive stuff. There's still some radioactive material in the ground and the water there. So it's very complicated. And then upstream, you've got the mining communities who have long seen the federal government as the enemy when it comes to their economy and their mining culture. So for them to have the EPA come in and do Superfund is is super scary. Yeah. I I remember interviewing Silverton town leaders and they'd been skeptical for years about the idea that the EPA had raised before the Gold King mine spill about the idea of Superfund cleanup of mines in that region. Um, you know, and again, the Superfund is this federal program to clean up some of the country's most polluted sites. Locals were concerned about property values, tourism, you know, whether that designation made the area sound like a cesspool. I mean, what do you think ultimately persuaded Silverton town leaders in that area to pursue Superfund? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, like you say, the, the idea of, of designating Superfund has been going on in Silverton since the late 1980s. And the town, the community has kind of pushed them off and said, no, we don't want to do that. We're going to do this on our own. And they've actually done a pretty good job uh, for the most part. But then more recently, the the Gold King spill happened. And when that happened, the downstreamers, the Durango people and, and other people downstream, they started pointing their fingers at Silverton and saying, you know what, you guys, you guys could have prevented this. If you would have let Superfund in earlier, um, you might have been able to prevent this. And it made Silverton look bad. And whether that was totally true or not, I don't know. But it did make Silverton look bad. And the stigma of being anti-Superfund and as being possibly a facilitator of being a hazardous waste dump was worse than being designated a Superfund site, I think. And they also realized that they needed to do something big. And something big needed to be done to finish this cleanup. And the locals and the envir- the volunteer organizations were simply not up to the task anymore. In December, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt put the Gold King Mine and about a dozen other Superfund sites on what he's calling a top priority list. These are sites that are designated for presumably faster cleanup as Superfund sites. What impact do you think that's going to have on cleaning up these mines in the area? Well, you know, I know in Silverton there was a lot of hope when Pruitt came in and did that because they thought, wow, this is going to speed things up. Because that's one of the things about Superfund that's scary is that it's kind of this indefinite commitment to having this cloud over your head of being a Superfund site. And so they thought, oh, this is going to speed it up. Everything's going to be better maybe. Maybe they'll be done in in five years instead of 30. So far, I don't think that's really happened. I mean, there's no indication that it's moving extremely quickly or anything like that. Uh, So... I'm not sure that it's going to make that big of a difference. Pruitt also said that he was going to review the claims for payment for damage claims downstream. And 
I haven't seen anything come out of that yet either. And of course, Pruitt's now caught up in so many of his own scandals that I don't know that he's going to be able to devote any attention to this. I just want to return to your personal story, Jonathan. You know the southwestern Colorado region so well. You've been traveling around Colorado and Utah talking about this book to folks. I mean, what's the reaction been like? Um, it's been interesting. You know, so I think some people are are a little taken aback when I say, you know, the Gold King spill wasn't as dramatic and traumatic as it was. And I don't want to diminish the how bad it was. But you know, when I say it wasn't extraordinary that these things are happening everywhere, people are kind of taken aback and like, really? And uh, when I was up in Utah in Salt Lake, I was pointing out the fact that they have this mine, the Bingham Canyon mine, which is this huge open pit copper mine that can be seen from all over the Salt Lake area. Plus, you can see it from space because it's so big. And they've got like a um, an observation platform up there and you can go look at it. You know, it's like a tourist attraction. And <laughs> I was trying to say, you know, don't you think that's kind of weird that you can go up there on this observation platform and you can go look down in this gaping wound in the earth and you can kind of look at it with awe and, and, and say, wow, you know, mankind is amazing what he can do. And then you turn around and see on the TV, this orange river and you screech in horror. There's something weird about that, you know, and, and I think people are sort of taken aback at first, but then they kind of start thinking about it and they do start realizing that, you know, we live in an area that has been in some ways it's the extractive industries and, and other industries have really kind of done a pretty bad deed on the, on the landscape. And hopefully, hopefully people will be inspired by these things to try to make it better. Well, Jonathan Thompson, thank you. Thank you. Author Jonathan Thompson wrote River of Lost Souls, The Science, Politics, and Greed Behind the Gold King Mine Disaster. He spoke with CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood. Thompson gives a talk Saturday evening at Denver's Book Bar. An inner-city youth program near the Denver-Aurora border aims to change the lives of young men, predominantly immigrants and refugees. Street Fraternity on East Colfax touts itself as a brotherhood of men committed to diversity and inclusiveness. CPR's Vic Vela takes us inside. 17-year-old John U has lived through horrors in his life most people can only imagine. He grew up surrounded by violence in a small village in Thailand where his older sister was murdered. War was a part of it because uh, soldiers would come and raid our villages from time to time. That would cause us to kind of fear for our life, you know. It it was kind of hard. When he moved to Denver several years ago, U struggled in school. His parents weren't educated, so they really couldn't help him with his homework. And you can't ask your teachers because your teachers can't understand you because you're a second language speaker. And you basically break down because your teachers can't understand you, your parents can't help you. Frustrated, Ooh fell into the wrong crowd, but found new life at a place called Street Fraternity. He's now set to graduate high school and has been accepted to every college he's applied to. He credits the East Colfax Youth Program for helping him achieve his success. Ooh was one of many people who attended a recent five-year anniversary celebration for Street Fraternity, featuring a reggae band and barbecue and smiling faces. 
The program was co-founded by Yoel Gubermeskel. He's a former refugee from Eritrea in East Africa. He opened Street Fraternity to create a place where young urban men could find brotherhood in a positive environment. I always say it's like the United Nations here, you know. So you have majority who are former refugee young men who live in this neighborhood, some immigrants, and also many local-born um, youth and young men that live around the neighborhood that choose to participate and show up. The nonprofit is located on a rundown stretch of East Colfax. It offers free meals, a workout room, a music studio, and a prayer and meditation space open to all religious beliefs. It's also a place where young people can get help with school and get going on a career path. Miguel Gutierrez is a 20-year-old Denver native who's been coming here the last couple of years. The older people usually help tutor the younger kids. Um, They have computers available. You know, people go in there and search for jobs, apply online. She Fraternity is a good place to help with that. It's like a first stepping stone into the adult world. Many of the young participants consider this their second home. 15-year-old Jibby Saar is originally from the West African country of Senegal. He says when kids come to street fraternity, they're accepted for who they are, regardless of where they're from. If you come here, I don't know why. Everybody just respectful. It just respect. I don't know. Like, just respect. It's like something is in here. It's powerful. Jibby says street fraternity offers a safe space in an area where there's lots of poverty and crime. If you get out these doors, it feels different than here. Here, you see, we live in a dangerous place, but if you come here, it's just safe. That's something Matthew Mangesha hears a lot. He's a young community organizer who volunteers here. He says kids often come to seek refuge from the memories of violence they grew up with and the crime that currently afflicts their neighborhoods. A lot of them who are dealing with PTSD that they don't realize that they have, um, as refugees, they, they come in from countries that they witnessed bodies on the ground. They witnessed people being murdered in front of them. Mangesha, who was born in the U.S. after his parents fled war in East Africa, says street fraternity offers young people facing challenges a place to heal wounds and thrive. They know when they come here, there's, there's going to be no hate speech. They're, they're really being emotionally beaten down by the world. And then when they go to school, it's even worse. Um, and then when you turn on the TV, like you can't, they, they can't run away from it. And I think this is a place where they can come and just really just be themselves and be around other people who've gone through what they've gone through. As for the program leaders, it's sometimes as simple as just being there for these kids. Street Fraternity co-founder Yoel Gubermeskel. Sometimes we're just listening. Sometimes we're just hanging out or we're playing ping pong. We're having the silliest conversations in the kitchen and then the deepest conversations in the kitchen and around food. And what do you get from that? You know, it's that's where we build that brotherhood. That's where we build that personal growth. And as these young men try to navigate life's challenging path, they can take solace in a place where their brothers are walking alongside them. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. In rural Colorado, one in four households don't have high-speed Internet access. But they're a step closer, thanks to a bill signed by Governor Hickenlooper earlier this month. The law creates subsidies to bring broadband to rural areas, something supporters say is crucial to economic growth and even medical care. 
I'm joined by Virginia Harmon, Chief Operating Officer of Delta Montrose Electric Association, and Dr. Jay Shore, Director of Telemedicine at the Depression Center at the University of Colorado. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Virginia, you're joining us from Montrose and live a few miles outside of the city. What's Internet access like at your house? At my house, um, you know, like you said, I do live just a few miles outside of Montrose. Our Internet access is sufficient for basic usage. Um, You know, we can have one device on at a time and and be able to do the basic functions that you would expect, um, sending files, checking email, streaming a show. But once we get more than um, a couple devices on, it slows down significantly. And, you know, you experience buffering when you're trying to, to watch something. You have extreme difficulty uploading files, things like that. So I would say it's it's subpar. It's uh, difficult to do work, um, but it functions for, for basic needs. And the state has a digital divide. 93% of Coloradans have broadband, but it's a lot lower in rural areas. Do, do you see that? I mean, how is access in the city of Montrose itself? Um, yeah, so I, I definitely do see that, and Montrose is a great example. So Montrose, even though it's a, a small community by a lot of standards across Colorado, it is our largest community here in our service territory. Montrose has about 20,000 people, and I'd say the speeds there, you can get you know 60 megabits uh, per second. You can even get up to 100 megabits per second within the city limits, and that's sufficient for, for most activities even within businesses. So even just a few miles makes a pretty significant difference in our area as far as what speeds are available. Now, this new law takes a subsidy for phone service that was already in place and diverts it to broadband. It's expected to fund more than $100 million over the next five years. Your co-op, Delta Montrose Electric, builds fiber optic networks through a subsidy. Uh, subsidy is that right? A subsidiary, Subsidiary, yes. yeah. Um, yeah, and, so we do. Mm-hmm. Elevate fiber. So, so explain this, the economics of this for us. I mean, why is a subsidy necessary here? Um, as far as uh, the bill being signed and, and additional funding going into broadband? Exactly. So, yeah, okay. So it's it's really important to us because as we build out our fiber optic network um, and connect people and businesses to high-speed Internet, it it's, it's easy to do in our more densely populated areas. So when we have more houses per mile of line, it, it makes more economic sense. As we get into our most rural areas outside of our population centers, obviously we lose density and it becomes more and more cost prohibitive to build fiber to those residences and to those businesses that live on the outskirts of our service territory. So are we talking actually having a crane or, you know, kind of a, a backhoe go out and dig these holes and, <laughs> and, and put this fiber into this house? Is that what we're talking about here? Yes, we are literally building fiber to homes and businesses. Um, now, whether that requires a backhoe or not, it depends <laughs> on how the electricity gets to the house. So if, if the electricity is underground, we follow our power lines. So we go underground. If it's overhead, we follow our power lines and we attach, we literally attach fiber overhead. But you're, you've already been able to build out some of your target areas and, and you have construction yes. underway in others. Does that imply then that perhaps a subsidy isn't always needed? Um, I could see how it would be. It could be seen that way. But I think if you if you if, if we research our project a little bit, what we've done is we've taken our service territory, um, which is where we provide electric service, and we've divided it up into 50 zones, and those zones are based on electrical feeders. We set a goal for each zone that's basically taking the cost of building it and then the number of subscribers we would need to break even on that. And we've set a zone for or a goal for each zone. When that zone hits its goal on pre-registrations, we build fiber. So that protects, um, you know, the investment and, and ensures longevity of the project. 
there are some zones that obviously need a significant take rate in order to build because of the finances of building out to those more rural areas. So if they never meet their goal, we never build them. Um, this is where the sub- subsidies would come into place. This is where put, applying for these grants is really important to us because we can apply that grant money directly to the cost of building that individual zone and make that take rate more achievable so that we can build it to those more, more rural areas. And so for these rural customers, the ones way out there, are we, are we talking <laughs> yeah. years for this? Are we talking, when are we talking for them to possibly be getting broadband? You know, of course, that, that depends on the grant. So uh, I can say that we did receive funding this in this last cycle. We received $2.5 million, and that was to go towards building in three of our more rural zones, and it means that they're getting built right now. Um, so I would say if, if we do apply for grant funding and we do get that grant funding, we will put that to use immediately um, in the zones that, you know, that qualify for grants. As far as our overall project, you know, we're looking to build it out hopefully in, in you know, five to six years. But like I said, if those zones never hit their goals, if we can't afford to build it, we won't. So that's why the grants are so important to our rural customers because it ensures that they will get that service. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Virginia Harmon. She's Chief Operating Officer of Delta Montrose Electric Association about rural broadband Internet service. A new law will subsidize the development of broadband in rural areas. I want to turn now to Dr. Jay Shore, who's in studio with me. You're a psychiatrist and the director of telemedicine at the University of Colorado Depression Center. You testified in favor of this bill because you're concerned about medicine in rural areas. What does broadband have to do with access to medical care? Well, I think medicine, like the rest of our society, is going an incredible transformation um, with the, as we've seen, Facebook, you know, Uber, VBRO, us social networking, really in the last decade, how we interact, receive our our education, our care, and, and conduct our business. It's all over the internet. And that's been true in medicine as well, particularly in the field of telemedicine. I've uh, been doing this work for about 20 years with rural populations. And particularly in psychiatry, we use a lot of live interactive video conferencing. Um, and so that allows us to see patients not only in rural communities and clinics, but we have programs now where we see them directly in their home. Uh, we uh, uh, we have patients uh, at the Helen and Arthur E. Johnson um, Depression Center that uh, have to drive in from the mountains or other rural uh, uh, regions, really representing a whole day commitment to to see a psychiatrist or another mental health provider with the video conferencing. If they have adequate broadband, we can see them directly in their homes. Additionally, I would say not just in psychiatry, but my colleagues at the University of Colorado also in addition to video conferencing, uh, patient portals, information about your health care. Um, your blood pressure, what medicine you take, all that stuff can be uploaded via the Internet. And uh, in-home monitoring now mm-hmm. that's coming down the pike, being able to check your blood pressure and sending those results uh, to the doctor. Just there's a huge revolution in technology care coming. And if, you're not, if you don't have that access, you're not going to be able to – uh, to really use it and get the benefits. And you mentioned people having to drive all the way into to your depression center. Do you believe this conferencing, this this conferencing on the internet, uh, allows people to actually get treatment where they may say, "I'm not going to drive two hours to get treatment." Uh, 
I know there's 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 patients and communities that just would not have access to psychiatric and medical care with without telemedicine, um, uh, and not only sort of the time commitment. I I've seen a lot of uh, I've unfortunately know a few patients I've lost uh, because of travel in the winter trying to get into medical appointments and cl- and clinics. So there's there's sort of real not only kind of convenience and access, but there's there's sort of real life safety consequences of of not being able to have access to this type of technology. Is there a limit on the kind of treatment that can be done remotely? I think the work that you do, of course, it's it's, it's looking at someone, speaking to them, talking about, you know, what they're experiencing, but it's, it's not a hug. It's not a handhold. It's, it's, you know, you're not there. Well, so the, the two decades of evidence in the field of telepsychiatry demonstrate that you can get equal outcomes if you see them in person over video conferencing. You do have to adapt the relationship and style. But I would argue both in medicine and in society, we're all moving to what I like to call hybrid relationships. That means we have relationships with people in person. We have it over the phone, over email, over a patient portal, over a social network, over video conferencing. So we use multiple platforms now to hold and manage relationships with people. And it's no different in medicine than it is generally in our lives. And having access to those tools to enhance those relationships is is really critical. Can you give us an example of of someone you've, you've maybe reached out to via the internet and 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 how um sure uh i i can think uh, uh, of a, a patient in uh, many patients uh, in remote rural areas uh thinking of uh, one recently in particular who was in a residential alcohol uh, treatment facility where they had no access to psychiatric care so they had an addiction disorder but they were struggling with the consequences of trauma and had PTSD and depression which was aggravating their addiction so I was able to meet establish a, a relationship um, recommend and help prescribe appropriate psychiatric medications and um, communicate really in a hybrid way, not only with the patient, but as a virtual member of the team on the ground treating uh, them to help facilitate care, get them on the right medication and, and course of track. And over the course of a couple months, uh, their symptoms really appro- improved and, and minimized, and they were able to really get on with the next phase of their life. And would the quality of care have been less had that not there not been that internet access? Um, well, the access to me as a psychiatrist probably really wouldn't have been there. They wouldn't have been able to get the psychiatric uh, expertise, help, and, and medicine. So it would have been uh, – they may have gotten some help with their addiction, but they would have been at risk both for their depression and their trauma-based disorders as well as really trying to just treat one disorder alone um, makes it uh, less likely that you're going to be successful in getting a good outcome. What about expanding this? Is this something you plan to expand as, as this Internet broadband continues to go out to rural parts of Colorado? Well, so in the depression center itself right now, we have five to six different models of care. So I gave the example of directly into home. We also have a number of models with, of what we call integrated care. This is where you work as a mental health professional as part of a virtual uh, virtual team member into a primary care setting. One great example is uh, in partnership with Colorado Access, the Rose Community Foundation, and St. Joe's and Bruner, we're providing virtual consultation into a perinatal clinic for uh, pregnant women who may be suffering from psychiatric disorders, um, uh, giving advice on appropriate psychiatric diagnosis, pharmacology, and providing brief interventional uh, therapy. So, again, trying to leverage the different programs available that we create through te- uh, telepsychiatry and telemedicine 
process and is critical. And so if you if you don't have that access, you really can't come to the table to play the game. Virginia, I want to bring you back in here for, for a second. When you're listening to this and when you think about yeah. the future for your rural neighbors with faster, reliable Internet, what kind of opportunities do you hope it, it opens for them? Well, I think telemedicine is actually one of the biggest ones that we tout locally. Um, we have an aging population. We are a kind of a, a retirement community um, on this part of the Western Slope. And so telemedicine is actually one of the biggest things that we tout uh, the broadband actually helping. And so not only telemedicine, but also just access to school programs in rural areas, well, across the state and across the nation, schools become more dependent on high-speed Internet. There's a lot of assignments that are done at home through connections. There are a lot of portals that, that students have to access, and that can't be done without high-speed Internet. So education is one that we look at. We look at telemedicine, and then uh, we also look at um, people working from home. So, you know, you've got a lot of people living in these areas who want to move here, want to, to live in the beautiful part of Colorado that, that we enjoy, but they can't do so unless they work from home, and these speeds will allow them to do that as well. So those are the three things I think we tout the most as far as what this will enable individuals to do in our communities. Thank you both for being here. Yeah, thank you. And thank you very much for this opportunity. Virginia Harmon is Chief Operating Officer at Delta Montrose Electric Association. Dr. Jay Shore is the Director of Telemedicine at the CU Depression Center. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The wreck of an Italian cruise ship shocked the world in 2012. The Costa Concordia ran aground with more than 4,000 people aboard. 32 people died in the wreck, including a brave violinist who helped save other passengers during his final moments. And the story of that musician inspired a Colorado composer to write a new violin concerto. Jeffrey Nitsch called his new composition Costa Concordia. The Promusica Colorado Chamber Orchestra premiere it in Denver and Boulder this weekend. Jeff, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Some may remember the Costa Concordia wreck, but fewer know the story of this heroic violinist that captivated you. Can you tell us about what he did on the ship? Yes, uh, Shandor Fair was the uh, leader of the orchestra on the ship. And uh, so he coordinated the other musicians but he also played uh, violin in the in the Hungarian gypsy folk style it was very flashy yeah. uh, sort of playing style and um, when the uh, when the wreck happened uh, he did I think what what any person does in a in a crisis they just lend a hand wherever they can there were some children who had gotten separated from their parents he got them back together he got people into their life jackets got them into the into the lifeboats, and then and when he wasn't it was, trained to do this. That's right. That's right. Uh, that was one of the many uh, sort of things that came out in the aftermath of this. That uh, the the non-crew staff of the cruise line hadn't been trained at all on what to do in an emergency. And so he saves these these people, gets them on these lifeboats, and then what does he do? It's his turn to get on the boat, and he says, "I can't leave without my violin." Hmm. 
And he goes back to his cabin to get his violin and uh, never makes it back out and, and, and perishes when the ship capsizes. So when you, you discovered this person and, and he really captivated you, did you want to write music that sounded heroic, that sounded uh, like it was something powerful that he did? Well, I definitely wanted to, to get at the, the power of the story. Um, but somehow uh, a kind of heroic musical language wasn't quite what I wanted to get at. I, see. I, I think I w- was really moved by this idea that he would risk his life uh, t- to go back and get this thing, which is really an extension of himself, uh, his musical voice. Mm-hmm. And that to me was a universal idea, this idea that that uh, human beings are willing to sacrifice themselves for someone or something that they love or a cause that they believe in. And I think that's one of our most noble characteristics. So that was really more what I was kind of going for, the tragedy of the story, but also the this universal uh, truth that I wanted to get at. You've written a violin concerto, a showcase for the violin with backing from the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Is the violin playing the role of Shondor? Not quite. I, I wanted to tell the story actually from the standpoint of the violin. Oh, itself. Uh, the violin itself. And so uh, our our soloist is not playing the role of the violinist. He's, he's giving voice to the violin, uh, a, a voice that was taken from it, if you will, by this, by this tragedy. And does it open uh, with, with doom and gloom? Are there happier moments in this concerto? I mean, tell me about it. There are definitely some happier moments. It opens with a, with a sort of uh, dark, brooding uh, uh, cadenza for the, uh, for the soloist. Uh, but then it's like we go back in time to happier times, and there is a, 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 a dance-like, sort of uh, almost playful sort of music that, that gradually... Uh, uh, unwinds and gets into a and gets into a tenser place. Yeah. Well, I want to hear one of those more intense moments. This is a preview, which was recorded at a rehearsal of the new Costa Concordia Violin Concerto from Jeffrey Nitsch. Shandor Feyer uh, was Hungarian, mm-hmm. yeah. and you used a type of traditional Hungarian music as the basis for this part of your piece. Tell us about that. Right. So there is a, a traditional folk dance called a charash, uh, which starts slow and gets progressively more uh, fast and frantic until it kind of falls apart. Yeah. And and that was the trajectory of the, the middle part of this piece that I wanted to have anyway. And so I... I wanted to reference that form and reference that that musical language a little bit, but not just in, imitate it. Uh, so it's a, it's sort of put through my own musical voice. I see. Now, this Hungarian connection actually helped you bring this piece to fruition. You started a crowdfunding campaign to help pay for the piece. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the donations came from Eastern Europe. I mean, how did that happen? Well, we, we created a, a video and it went viral. <laughs> and so it was, uh, it was, I think, a story that, that really resonated with the people of Hungary. Uh, they're very, very proud of their people and of their, of their national identity. And so this story had received a lot of attention in Hungary. But again, not a lot of attention around the world, it seems. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did that surprise you that this went viral, that you saw as much support as you did from, from Eastern Europe? 
Yes and no. I mean, at the, when it actually happened, of course, you're like, oh my gosh, look at <laughs> a, another share, another, you know, 5,000 views or something. But um, on the other hand, I think from the very start, I knew that this was a very special story and I believed that it would resonate with people. And Hungarians gave you money for this piece. Yes. Mm-hmm. So part of them actually is in this piece. Yeah, it sounds for, like. yeah. for sure. Yeah. I want to hear another moment from the concerto. This is one of the saddest moments from Costa Concordia. talked about how the piece is also about relationships, Mm -hmm. about the relationship between a violin and its owner. Mm -hmm. You hear that in this piece, the breathing, the playing, this violin. How do you explore that in the music? Well, this section uh, is subtitled Bereft. Bereft. And and I just had this idea of uh, being in the depths of the sea and uh, being parted from your beloved and sort of this searching reaching out uh, almost desperately, hoping to, to reconnect. And this is the violin, yes. desperate to reconnect with its owner. That's right, that's right. The soloist for the premiere is Edward Dusenberry, the first violinist from the Takas Quartet in Boulder, mm-hmm. I believe. Yes. They've won a Grammy and played concerts around the world. What did Ed bring to the music? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, you could hear it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you could, yeah, that's right. I think the sound clip says it all. Ed is an extraordinary musician. He brings such care and attention and, and, and soul to it. And the great thing about being able to collaborate with that sort of a musician is that you know, I bring him the music in the first day and he spends some time with it, but then he has questions and suggestions. And he says, how about if we try it this way? How about if I bow it this way? Mm. Do you want it this way or this way? And when you're working uh, with somebody of that caliber, you can really uh, work on all of the finer aspects of it and create something very, very special. And and I couldn't ask for a, a better collaborator. Did you ever connect with Shondor's family? Well, it's funny that you should ask that because I have not connected with them uh, during the things like the crowdfunding campaign. I just didn't want it to seem like I was trying to capitalize on their grief or yeah. it just didn't set right with me. And I thought, well, when this is all done and I have a recording, I'll send it to them or try to track them down and send it to them. And then literally just this morning, I got an email from a reporter in Hungary who said, uh, I've been in touch with their family. We've heard about this project. They send their gratitude and their best wishes, and please send us the music when it's happening. Oh, that's touching. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jeffrey Nitsch composed a new violin concerto called Costa Concordia. 
Pro Musica Colorado Chamber Orchestra plays it tonight in Denver and Saturday in Boulder with violinist Edward Dusenberry as the soloist. Details at CPR.org. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.